0: Welcome to UCI Law Talks from the University of California, Irvine School of Law. Join us
1: on Twitter, at UCI Law. Good evening, everyone. It's my pleasure to welcome you to the first presentation in our COVID-19 and the Law series. Today, we'll be discussing quarantine and the limits of government action And I cannot think of two people more well-suited to lead this important conversation than Julie Hill and our very own Chancellor's Professor of Law, Michelle Goodwin. You are in for a treat, and I'll introduce them both in a moment. But first, I wanna thank the UCI Law team that made this evening possible. And they are Rebecca Bergeron, Jillian Henry, Dennis Sloan, Marianne Soden, and Stephanie Wilner. Thank you so much for bringing everyone here this evening together. Now it's my great pleasure to introduce our moderator, Julie Hill. She's an extraordinary trailblazer and a leader in business and philanthropy. And if you want her full bio, there's a link to it in the program. Now Julie is the founder of several companies and her philosophy is to say yes at the door. And she's been quoted as saying, if an opportunity comes up, walk through the door, even if you don't know how to do it. And she and I have had so many conversations about the importance of pushing oneself to do more than one ever thought was possible, and to never allowing yourself to be defined by the limits that others have set. And that's what Julie has done throughout her life. And her extraordinary success and her remarkable career are a testament to her philosophy of saying yes at the door. So let me just share a few of her career highlights. She's been a trailblazer in land development, including serving as president and CEO of Costain Homes. She's also the founder of Hillsdale Development, which is a land development and construction company. Julie has served and continues to serve on numerous boards so I'll only name a few. She's currently entering her second year as the chair of UCI Law, uh, excuse me, of UCI's board of trustees, and she's the first woman to serve in that position. She's also a member of the board of directors of Anthem, which I'm sure you know is the largest health insurance company in the US. And she's on the board of the Lord Abbott Family of Funds, which is a $200 billion New York-based mutual fund management firm, where she was the only woman for five years. Now, Julia is also a philanthropic leader in our community. She has served as the chair of human options. She's been a board member of the Orange County Community Foundation and served as a member of the Women's Leadership Board of the Kennedy School of Government. Julie has also, unsurprisingly, been recognized for her many accomplishments, including receiving the Amelia Earhart Award from the UCI Women's Opportunity Center and the Glass Ceiling Award from the American Red Cross. And I can't end this introduction without mentioning that she'll also become one of the first civilian astronauts in our history. You can ask her about that sometime. So in sum, Julie is a pioneer an innovator and an all around brilliant leader, which is why I asked her to also serve on UCI Law's Board of Visitors. She's been a steadfast and dedicated supporter of UCI Law from the beginning and is responsible for the existence of our domestic violence legal clinic. I am so thrilled that she's agreed to moderate the discussion this evening Thank you so much, Julie. Now we are also incredibly fortunate to have Michelle Goodwin on our faculty at UCI Law. Professor Goodwin is a Chancellor's Professor of Law and the founding director of the Center for Biotechnology and Global Health Policy. Her full bio is also in the program. Now, Michelle is not only on the faculty of UCI Law, but she's also on the faculty of the Stem Cell Research Center, the Gender and Sexuality Studies Department, the Program in Public Health, and the Department of Criminology, Law, and Society. Michelle's expertise includes bioethics, constitutional law, family law, health law, reproductive rights, and torts. She's an exceptional scholar in each of these disciplines. And she's also a public intellectual. She's frequently featured in the media and is at the forefront of national and international discussions of important topics. Recently, she was invited to present on the Big Ideas main stage of the prestigious Aspen Ideas Festival. And she also served as the plenary moderator at a UN session of over 5,000 people focused on ending violence against girls and women. Michelle is also a prolific author. Her publications include five books and over 80 articles, essays, and book chapters, as well as numerous commentaries. Her work is published or is forthcoming in numerous law journals, including the Yale Law Journal and the Harvard Law Review. Her most recent book is Policing the Womb, Invisible Women and the Criminalization of Motherhood, which was published by Cambridge University Press in February of 2020. And just today, the Washington Post described this book as a must read and one of the most important books in the field. So similar to Julie Hill, Chancellor's Professor Michelle Goodwin is a pioneer and a trailblazer. We are so very fortunate to have her as a member of UCI Law's faculty. And I simply can't think of two people better suited and more suited to have this conversation together. We have two great minds and two brilliant leaders. And so now I'll turn the presentation over to Julie Hill and Michelle Goodwin to discuss this important topic, quarantine and the limits of government action. And I'll return at the end to wrap up the session so please join me in giving a very, very warm welcome to Julie Hill and Michelle Goodwin. Thank you, Song.
2: Thank you, Song. Um,
1: remind me to have you
2: always do my introductions.
1: <laughs> oh, right? And who you were talking about
2: there for a while. <laughs> exactly, we set that all up. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll add my welcome to all of you uh, on the call. I think we have about 400 people or more on this Zoom, so I hope we don't break the internets. <laughs> and as you can see, I have my glass of wine, as it is 5 p.m., and we thought we'd invite you all to start your cocktail hour with us, and Michelle, you have your glass of wine. So that the idea was that this was to be sort of like a conversation between two friends talking about the issues of the day. Right. So Michelle is just my typical friend, right, that I hang out with every day. As Song said, she's an expert in bioethics, constitutional law, family law, health law, reproductive rights, so it's really a privilege to do this with you, Michelle. It's a privilege to be with you, Julie. So let's just jump right in. Okay, so COVID-19 and the law, quarantine and the limits of government action a lot of interesting issues uh, around civil liberties in our daily lives the recent beach wars come to mind and we can come back to that but how about if we jump right in on something that is becoming politicized that people have opinions on and that's the wearing of masks when out of the house as in you don't have to be a democrat to wear a mask (laughs) there's a lot of debate about this one so do you see this as a civil liberties issue i suppose you could argue that on both sides
0: well, you know, look, I I think the first, let me say it's such such a pleasure to be with you. And as Song Richardson, Dean Richardson was introducing you, I couldn't help but think about what my great grandmother used to say, which was take care of business now and think later. That seems to be your mantra by go in the door and say yes, right? So so we're just sort of channeling our, our forebears, our maternal forebears in all of that. You know, look, what government has... Um, the responsibility to do is to balance protecting health and safety with also um, safeguarding our civil liberties. And we could put that in the context of, of masks, but before we do, let me just say this, which is that dating back to 1905 Supreme Court decision, Jacobson v. Massachusetts, the Supreme Court made clear that a government has the authority to protect the public health and safety. It's their parents' patriotic authority. And that was, in that case, looking at vaccine, that the government had the authority to impose vaccines uh, or require vaccines um, in order to safeguard the public from smallpox. So the law is very clear. And even before Jacobson v. Massachusetts, dating back to the 1700s and the 1800s, the Supreme Court had made inter- iterations with regard to quarantine and, and so forth. So when we're talking about masks, you know, really, that's low level. Uh, but the real tragedy behind that, and I'll get specifically to the point, is that we actually don't have enough. So while there are folks that are upset about needing to wear a mask, which a government could say, wear a mask to protect um, the public, that's, that's simple. That's basic. We're at a time where we're confronted by this very unique coronavirus. It's not that this is the only one. There are multiple coronaviruses. It happens that this one is particularly lethal, particularly deadly. We don't necessarily have the full science behind this particular uh, coronavirus, which is why it's being called a novel coronavirus. And so as governments around the world are trying to safeguard the public, what they're doing is imposing a number of measures. And one of them happens to be wear a mask. And that's to protect individuals themselves as well as other people. And we can talk about, you know, how so much has changed since the very beginning about do you wear a mask, do you not wear a mask? And very early on, part of the challenge with the discourse around masks was the fact that we just simply did not have enough in the United States. And I'd love to talk about why we didn't have enough. And one clear thing is that in the U.S., we got rid of our pandemic team. That was a tragedy and a huge mistake. The pandemic team had been established um, through our national security um, um, office agency during the Obama administration. Um, It was clear, the science was very clear that there was the possibility of a novel type of a flu such as this that might emerge in a time such as now. And uh, leading to the inauguration before Obama left office, the Trump administration had been advised uh, about this. And part of the reason behind that was the fact that during the Obama administration, we experienced. H1N1 it was um, similar to this but it emerged in the United States there was the rise of Zika there was the rise of Ebola so we're living in a time where none of this is this is less and less becoming unique and rare so to your point on masks people be safe (laughs) wear a mask and protect the people
2: on planes absolutely so just one more point on on masks and then and we'll move on to some of these disparities Um, it's an interesting issue for me. It's kind of, in some ways, it's a cultural issue. So the friends that I have who are Asian have said, we don't think you get it in the U.S. We wore masks, not for ourselves, but for you. It was our social responsibility not to spread it. So I think that's something that's gotten lost in this discussion. Well,
0: you know, I'm so happy that that you actually mentioned that because that's actually a point at which we could start. Let me just say this. I've been so deeply disturbed about the racism behind how we have come to understand COVID-19. So deeply disturbed by the anti-Asian sentiment, the fact that there are children who were bullied at school before school shut down, the fact that there are people in this country who've been spat upon, who had guns pulled on them, who've been beaten up. A woman in New York had acid poured on her, a woman of Asian descent. We are better than that, but of course, you know, that reveals, of course, what's in our soil. And one of the strangest aspects of this and ironies of this is that as there were politicians who were saying this is Wuhan uh, disease, this is the China virus, Um, incredibly inappropriate, no one was stepping up to claim H1N1 as being derived in the United States. Now, to be clear about H1N1, that killed upward of more than half, you know, upward of more than half a million people, over 500,000 people died because of H1N1, which started right here in the United States. And so this very idea of pointing fingers elsewhere at other countries is absolutely ridiculous, and it's hypocritical, and it's something that we should absolutely stay away from. And on that point, was very interesting, as there were politicians saying, "Well, you know, this is because there are people in China who eat snakes and whatnot." And it happens that there were politicians from Texas who were saying that. Well, you know, you, if you, you look on the websites in Texas, it turns out that rattlesnake is a is a delicacy. There are numerous re- restaurants that sell. Rattlesnake, you can get it smoked, you can get it grilled, you can get it made into sausages and all of this. So again, this kind of racist pandering that will point a finger as to what people eat elsewhere. I mean, you look at some of the cuisine in the United States, things that people have eaten out of necessity or the things that people eat because they just desire it. Uh, raccoons and all possums and all sorts of things. So, you know, going down the racist rabbit hole is actually something that we should actually avoid we really need to pay attention to health and science and that really is the backdrop of your question which is how do we keep people safe how do we generate business in the united states where we can even make masks and ppes right we don't want to lose those kinds of opportunities but going in all of these other complicated directions that serve no public goodwill is really dangerous
2: so let's follow that line of thinking. And one of my questions for you is the disparity in the infection rates and the incidence of hospitalizations that divide along economic and racial lines. Um, I'm thinking of uh, incarcerated population, indigenous population. It's
0: it's a tragedy. I mean, we, I'm so glad we can raised that too. And, The reality is that there are many vulnerable people who've been affected by this. And there are people who, of course, are uh, less economically vulnerable who've been hurt by this. I wish that there was more compassion nationwide for what's been happening on the East Coast. For anybody who has friends in in New York, you know that no matter the, the wealth point or poverty point, there are people who are living in crisis. There are people in New York who are afraid to go into their elevators afraid to go into their lobbies because people in their buildings have died for some people in other parts of the country they don't feel that and so there have been people storming their Capitol buildings and things like that suggesting that there's really nothing here well it's it's hard to hear that there's nothing here if in fact you've had loved ones to die and to suffer and as you've said you know there are racial disparities that we've seen here What's flowed from this is that the very problematic infrastructures that we had that pre-existed COVID are revealing themselves now. Medical systems that didn't provide care to everyone or medical systems that sadly suffered from the legacies of implicit bias, which is something that Dean Richardson writes so prolifically about. And because of that, what we have seen are dramatic racial disparities And you know, if we were to just unpack some of what these cases look like, you know, when I've seen reported in the news how sad a five-year-old girl in Michigan dies who happens to be black from COVID-19. When I read the story though, it's not just that a five-year-old in Michigan has died. I read the story of her parents pleading with the pediatrician. Please take a look at our daughter pediatricians saying, well, we've given you some Tylenol, you know, it takes some days to work and the parents saying, it's not enough. Our daughter is really suffering. And then the parents taking the daughter to the emergency room and the girl being sent back home and the parents having to go back again and insist, please look at our daughter, please provide care and then the daughter dying. I look at the cases of black nurse who worked at one institution for more than 30 years and four times was actually sent away and then dying from COVID. The very kind of implicit biases that sadly wounds our country and wounds our medical system are those that we see now that have created certain kinds of disparities. Such that then we see in states like Wisconsin, where African Americans comprise only 6% of the population, but make up more than 50%, more near 60% of the COVID deaths in that state. Even more dramatically, in a city like Milwaukee. And Wisconsin isn't unique. Across the country, we see these same types of grave disparities. And that's looking at it in terms of race, in terms of black folks. The same is true with Latinos and meat industry in in this country. And I hope that we get back to that because there's more that I want to actually say about, you know, what is happening in terms of meat processing plants across the country. You know, they've become hotspots for COVID. You mentioned incarceration. The ACLU has uh, issued a study It came out about um, about a week and a half ago, about uh, and, it, and it looked at um, if we don't do a better job of releasing individuals from jails in this time of pandemic, it's possible that we might see more than 100,000 additional deaths in this country. We have to pay attention to all of these issues. You know, and for people who say, well, those are people in jail, We should treat people in jail differently than we treat other people. And I've heard heard politicians say this. What we must understand is that there are many people who happen to be in US jails who've actually not been convicted. These are people who actually just simply can't afford bail. And then we have two thirds of the incarcerated population in the United States who are nonviolent offenders. And so, you know, for people who are not looking upon the incarcerated population with humanity and compassion, I urge them to think again because we're all affected. And, you know, one last point is that you mentioned um, people and tribes, you know, the Navajo Nation in the Southwest has experienced a dramatic outbreak. And again, once, you know, can say, Let's look at the underlying infrastructural um, challenges in our country, and we'll see them play out in grave ways during these times. In any rural area, but this is compounded by folks on reservations, you're looking at limited medical facilities, oftentimes no water supply, um, where people have to go out and get their drinking water uh, from elsewhere. Great distances between them and the nearest uh, medical centers. Uh, These are spaces where when COVID hits, it hits in devastating ways.
2: It does indeed. And one of the things that has been on my mind partially because of having been involved with Anthem for so long is the, first of all, there were 20 or so million people anyway who did not have health insurance even after Obamacare. And now you think about the 30 million people who have lost their jobs. Yeah. And many of them relied on their jobs to get the health insurance. So we've just dumped a mass of people who are not served. And and I don't hear government talking about that. You know, the, the question is, is it a civil right to have health insurance? I, I believe it is. I think we have to look at these populations that, for one reason or another, have been disadvantaged, either economically or whatever. And you you think about the fact that this virus, with all of the evil and the sadness and the, the pain that it brings, at least it's casting a light in very sharp relief about our, as you say, kind of underlying structural discrepancies in our abilities to access our rights as human oh, beings. absolutely. Can you, can you speak to that as kind of a silver lining, maybe?
0: <laughs> well, you know what? Um, it's important to see the silver linings and uh, in all of our American legacies to the extent that if we were a country that could actually embrace as legacy people who have fought very hard for this democracy to be real and actualized for everyone. yeah, you know, I, I sit back, Julie, and I'd love for everyone to see someone like Harriet Tubman as a true American hero that's not just a forebear for black people in the United States, but for everybody. And if we could look at, as you say, some of these most painful times in our history and actually learn from the people who actually said, I believe we can be better than that. How can we take these times and show what our democracy really is meant to be about? And in these times, you see COVID-19 actually ripping off the Band-Aid, you know, showing what is underneath, showing, you know, in many places, you know, the kinds of things that we wish weren't there, but sadly, just happened to be the truths of our nation, and I think it's important that we look at those issues, you know, quite squarely. And so you've mentioned, you know, what about people who don't have health care? This has been an ongoing challenge in our country, you know, someone who doesn't necessarily have his full due yet in our country President Johnson, and President Johnson is recognized for uh, the um, path-breaking legislation with the Civil Rights Act of 1964, signing that into law, the Voting Rights Act of 1965, but he was also that person who was instrumental behind Medicaid. And many people don't recognize that, but that also was an important civil rights crusade as well, because we know those images of the hoses and the dogs, you know, being put on folks in Alabama and Mississippi who were just looking for a right to education to be realized just looking for you know, the right to be able to drink in the water fountain that they wanted to, use the bathroom that they needed to, what have you. But behind all of that brutality, where could people be served? What Johnson knew and what so many people lived through is that Black people died on the front steps of hospitals that wouldn't serve them, that were racially exclusionary. And so Johnson saw it as critically important to provide access to healthcare and to rid the United States of that kind of discriminatory healthcare regime. In the backdrop of COVID and the silver lining, as you say, what's been interesting is that there have been folks who've talked about Sweden, you know, um, and they've said, well, let's look to Sweden. And here's what's important. We can't just say, well, let's look to Sweden. And the fact that Sweden has taken a different approach with regard to COVID-19 without understanding that in Sweden, they have universal health care. In Sweden, if you have a child, uh, both partners get to have a parental leave that's up to a year or more. You know, in Sweden, there is a different kind of social safety net. So if we are going to look to silver linings, and if there are politicians that say, well, let's turn to Sweden, then let's really turn to Sweden and look at the fact that in Sweden, it's not a trade-off of your, your, your life, you know, it's not a trade-off of, you know, your well-being. The government has found ways to be there for the people who live there in that country. And if we do want to turn to how certain European countries are doing better, then let's look at the infrastructures in those nations, because we could learn something.
2: Speaking of learning something, I'm going to make an editorial remark here. Do you notice the countries that have um, really had a smart response in many, in many cases to led the virus? By They're led by women. Led by women. England and Germany and Norway. and I think there are six that I read about. But anyway, Absolutely. That's not what this, this forum is about. So we're talking about civil rights and civil liberties and how in a crisis it becomes more exacerbated. Let me ask you a practical more practical business question. This is kind of a hypothetical. So let's say that there's a business and I can think of lots of them that I used to frequent at dry cleaners or a hairdresser or uh, specialty stores of some kind. And let's say that they are deemed non-essential and they have been shut down, but for very real economic reasons, they have reopened and they've been fined or they have their license suspended or in some way stopped. Do you have an opinion on whether an appeal or a court action would be successful, given that the order is rather vague and that the definition of essential and non-essential is arbitrary?
0: Well, you know, one of the challenges here is that um, we've come into this space, with a failure of government from on high to lay a pathway with greater guidance. And so you're right, to the extent that there have been those that have said, you know, look, this is a bit of a mishmash um, across the country where it seems that um, some, in some places we have sheltering in place. We have different definitions across the country about what is essential and what is not. In some states, it's been deemed that uh, ammunition is essential, but not women's reproductive health care. So get a gun and get bullets, that's more essential than a woman being able to be seen for uh, her pregnancy. So there are inconsistencies. And it's understandable that businesses, um, as they are suffering, want some form of economic relief. And what that relief might look like also, might look different across the country depending upon what state um, that business actually happens to be located in and the composition of what those courts look like. Now, some may say that's wrong. That's the government um, that we actually have. You know, in the state of Wisconsin, just today, the Supreme Court has come down now once again with a decision that pushes against the governor. In that case, the governor's shelter in place order has now been overturned by that uh, Supreme Court. And the court has said, Go back." we saw the Wisconsin Supreme Court, um, in the time of the Wisconsin election just a few weeks ago, again, uh, overturned the governor who wanted extra time for the election. There's an interesting question for these times, and that is the politicization of our courts uh, and what our democracy, um, what is our democracy? How does one shape a meaningful democracy in these times? When there are people who've become quite suspicious of what our courts truly represent, maybe we'll get into more of that, but that is also a very important question for these times, not just the actions of legislatures, not the actions of of governors, but also the actions of our work. And so far in the state of California, we see support uh, for the governor. And as I've said before, you know, the US Supreme Court has made very clear that government can in fact impose certain conditions in order to protect public health and safety. I will say that government action can't be absolute. So what we haven't talked about are what are some of the limits, right? And in these times, there are important limits too, right? That we wanna pay attention to, especially when it comes to protecting
2: individuals' privacy. So maybe we'll get in that as well. But well, why don't we do that? When, when you and I had our conversation one-on-one when we were thinking about this uh, presentation, we, um, oh, by the way, I hope everybody's having a glass of wine. We're not drinking alone up here. Yeah, wine
1: water with <laughs> <Our> cocktail
2: out. <hour. laughs> this, this whole notion of the municipality of, of Newport Beach, um, a councilman suing the governor for infringement of rights. I mean, it, it begs the question on the hierarchy of rights municipalities versus state versus federal government but your answer to me was in a crisis it's constitutionally been proven over and over that the higher authority has has uh, jurisdiction well when
0: you think about this you know one thinks about it within the context of the obligation of a government if there were something that if, if our homes were sliding down the hill People want their government to come in and help save their home. You know, if the homes are burning, one wants the fire department to come in and put the fires out, right? One understands that, you know, governments have duties as well as obligations to the public duties, responsibilities, obligations, and even though these all seem like synonyms, they're, they're actually a little bit different by nuance. And so, yes, I mean, dating back, it's very clear in law that the parents' patriotic authority that a government has And that is to serve as the role of euphemistic parent to the citizens of its jurisdiction uh, in order to protect them in matters related to um, safety, public health and safety. The point of caution that we've traditionally had to address is that in times of uh, national security threat or public health crisis, sometimes it has been that government has gone too far sometimes it has been that government has used during those times a uh, pandemic or a public health crisis as a means of discrimination. Now, that's not what we've seen here, but for audiences who might wonder, well, what does Professor Goodwin mean about that? You know, with eugenics in the united states and eugenics started in the united states most people associated with germany germany adopted the law that we had the model law in the united states the united states at the turn of the last century determined that its public health crisis involved people that they thought were socially and morally and mentally unfit the government created a campaign then to sterilize people that it viewed as being not sufficiently American based on their genetics at birth. There was a model Virginia law that was then challenged in the U.S. Supreme Court. It was really like a test case because it was a case that involved a poor white girl from Virginia who had been raped and got pregnant um, after her employer's nephew uh, raped her. In the state of Virginia, they had this colony and this colony was for people that they considered socially unfit, and they really wanted to rid society of, and this is strange, it sounds horrific, and it was horrific, rid society of people that were deemed unfit. The case goes up before the US Supreme Court and Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes says, three generations of imbeciles are enough. And he uses Jacobson v. Massachusetts and he says that the very authority that the state has to vaccinate is broad enough to cover snipping the fallopian tubes. Now we see that as a horrible, as a horrible exercise of government authority. Terrible. in that way, you know, US government saw, you know, being unfit as its own pandemic. And the result was sadly tens of thousands of Americans sterilized against their will. So there are times in which we can see that government abuses its authority and its power. And we have to be mindful of that.
2: How do you see, uh Trump's order to uh, keep the meatpacking and slaughterhouses open in that light?
0: You know, this is a real tragedy. And again, we see, you know, what's percolating to the top are certain infrastructural problems that existed below. I think it's a tragedy on many different levels looking at our meatpacking industry right now where we have COVID hotspots where we have had high contamination rates, where we have begun to see um, a a tremendous uh, death toll. Um, And it's one where immigration intersects, where there are people who feel powerless to be able to express the uh, types of challenges that they're under because they fear being deported. And it is really a kind of tragic space in so many regards, and not much of it is actually paying attention to protecting the health of the people who serve there. let me say this, Julie, and I love having this conversation. I wish we could go on for hours because we're just getting started. You know, what, what I think we really need to pay attention to is that we've not, actually done the work that we need to do we're thinking about what essential needs and who are essential workers in fact instead what we've done is to see some people as expendable as fungible we claim that they're necessary we see that they are because they deliver food they work in the meatpacking industry do work at the hospitals but at the same time there's been such a low regard really for the humanity of these people. Um, and we have to be honest about that and we need to do a better job of it. But you know, it reminds me of something. Shortly after the 13th Amendment uh, was ratified and the 13th Amendment ended slavery, it turned out that plantations grew larger post 13th Amendment than higher because the 13th Amendment had an exception and that was slavery could be maintained so long as individuals were convicted of crime and so this then became an expedient wedge and way for southern states to create all sorts of things that could become crimes so if there were three black people standing on a corner that's a crime and if you can't pay the hundred dollar fee in 1867 then you go to jail If you're a black person and your house is too small, or it's too large, that's a crime. If you're caught in a park and you're a black person, it's a crime. And what I'm getting to is that what these systems then created were to push people in jail and then black people were rented out. And in places like Alabama, thousands upon thousands were rented out to coal mines these coal mines would regularly collapse. And so you'd have black kids who had been convicted because they stood on a corner or what have you, hundreds of them would regularly die. So they were necessary, but they were expendable and fungible. And when I think about our coal mines and the lack of safety today, I think, well, that's just kind of been historically true because historically, the people that have been shuttled into that space were thought of as
2: expendable and fungible exactly you know i think maybe one of the things that might be happening and i would hope is that as a country we're kind of getting a civics lesson you know we we stopped teaching civics i think in high school in the way that we did when i was coming up and i would hope that these kinds of debates or discussions would happen all around it's it's vital to keep our democracy strong and going, so I invite all of our audience to uh, continue these kinds of conversations. Um, Before we take questions that have come in from the audience, I have a sense that we've gotten a few. Um, Do you have thoughts for people who are tuning in who might be wondering how they can make a difference? Do you have suggestions for them?
0: You know, um, I I, I do, but before I get to that, you might have remind me, you, you mentioned civics lessons this is a time for us to learn about who we are and to be honest about that. You know, I think that five or six years ago, there were conversations that we were perhaps not ready for in our country because we saw ourselves as being so far beyond uh, sexism, uh, classism, racism. There were those who write about it Uh, who who know empirically that we're still challenged by that, but I think as a social matter, many people believed we were just in a different place. But if you look at the Confederate flags being waved in Michigan, where there are death threats against the governor there, who's just simply trying to keep the people in that state safe, when you look at the kind of racist vitriol um, that has arisen during this time, when you think about governors saying that a woman's ability to be able to be to exercise her constitutional right to terminate a pregnancy during this time when they say well that's just not essential you know all of those things tell us something more about our country and so i do think that lesson that you're talking about in terms of civics is critically important and with that in terms of what people can do hey in this time we see the urgency of what's behind our democracy and the vote. See the importance of people voting. See the importance of people articulating voting in safe ways. Um, That is making sure as in California, where people will already have opportunity to vote by mail, but will be voting by mail uh, in the election. Um, And no matter what is going to be happening in their states, it's really important that people participate in this democracy. That is critical. There are so many people who have died, who've been wounded, who've been injured, who've contributed their lives, uh, their, their lives work to making sure that our democracy could be whole. And many of us share those legacies. You know, I'd like to think that those legacies don't just relate to people of color, but those legacies relate to us all.
2: Yeah, what a concept to get a ballot in everybody's hands. Yes, but yes, I, I love that uh, idea. Insurrection. So, <laughs> that's, that's if good. only it didn't take an insurrection to think
0: about voting being essential. You know what I'd love to see? I'd love to see a voting holiday in the United States. Yes. You know, it is fundamentally unfair that there are some people who have to wait until after getting off from work at 5 or 6 p.m. and rush to the polls where there are lines and they have to wait hours more in order to vote or risk being fired because they want to go and vote at nine or 10 in the morning and yet have to wait in line five or six hours. We are better than that. We have to do a better job. There's
2: so many things to do. So many things we have to fix. Things things So what I want to do is have you give any suggestions to the audience about ways that they can make a difference or success, and then we'll turn it over to Song who will do some questions from the audience.
0: All right, well, let me just put this one out and then turn it over to to Dean Richardson. And that is really um, folks getting um, out to vote and finding the ways to do that. And what I mean by getting out, I'm not necessarily saying out such as people in Wisconsin who were forced to go out by that state Supreme Court and the U.S. Supreme Court. And we know that at least 70 cases of COVID were tied to people in Wisconsin going out to vote but being engaged in the electoral process and being sensitive to the electoral politics and process. And what I mean by that, one of the things that we've seen in our nation um, in recent years, and and it's not new, it's not new. Um, It doesn't give honor to the legacies to even think of it as being new, but voter suppression. Voter suppression has become real, voter ID laws and whatnot. The claims that there's voter fraud taking place, which we know just simply have not not been proven at all. But we know that the effects are tremendous. We know that in Wisconsin, for example, um, in Milwaukee, you know, polls, there were only five polls that were open in the last election. And uh, one of their counties, Wauwatosa County, there was one poll for 72 or 73,000 people in that particular state. Again, those are the kinds of issues that we have to pay attention to. And for people who don't have that experience and say, well, it's pretty easy for me. I, I spend 10 minutes and I vote. It's important to understand that not everybody in this country has that ease of voting. And we have to care just as much about their right to vote as our own when it's easy. And, and before Dean Richardson comes on, I, I wanna make this point. And I think about Banny Lou uh, Fannie Lou Hamer is from Mississippi, and Miss Hamer uh, worked as a sharecropper, and many times had been threatened by the owner of the farm on which she worked that she would be fired, and so would her husband, and that they would make sure that they never had the opportunity to work anywhere. And the reason why she was threatened so often was because she was fighting so hard for the right to vote. I am moved by what she describes as one of her experiences. She and a group of women were on their way, once again, to try to vote. In Mississippi, they were notorious for requiring that people guess the amount of bubbles on a bar of soap in order to vote, or how many jelly beans were in a jar in order to vote, or to recite the Mississippi State Constitution. Despite all of those impediments and barriers, Miss Hamer and her friends were on a bus to go vote. And when the bus paused for them to take a restroom break, police arrived and police took them to a jail, a jail that was occupied by men. And police ordered the men in the jail to beat the women. And they ordered uh, two uh, men in the jail, two black men to beat Miss Hamer. Now, she had suffered from polio as a child and so tried to protect the leg that had been most affected by it. The guard was insensitive to that and beat her even harder. And in fact, when dissatisfied with how the uh, incarcerated man was beating her, took the baton himself and began beating her in the head. Miss Hamer, as she recounted this at a Democratic National Convention, she said all of this just on the account that I want to vote to become a full citizen. That continues to resonate with me. And I think it should resonate with all of us in this time that uh, COVID, we're in a time of COVID, we're in a time of pandemic, but we must protect our democracy. And voting and voting right is essential.
2: So
1: basic. Thank you
2: so Thank much. You. Dean Richardson, questions.
1: Yes, and this has been such an incredible and fascinating conversation uh, so far. We have a number of questions, but given that we have about 10 minutes left, let me ask the broadest one that, that, that I received to give you time to think about and answer this. So from your point of view, what important questions are we not asking, right? Questions that you ask uh, yourself for which there are no clear answers. So, you know, I think that we're not asking
0: questions, uh, appropriate questions about our food supply uh, in these times, uh, what's happening to our farmers, how are we feeding people, how will we go to feed people, um, especially given what we know in terms of our meat plant, uh, packing uh, facilities and things like that. How do we keep those spaces safe? How do we keep the food supply safe uh, in the United States? I think that we're not asking the appropriate questions with regard to housing and the homeless populations in the United States. I think we're not even beginning to scratch the surface. I do think that there is a silver lining uh, when it comes to that, but we're clearly not doing enough. I think we're not necessarily asking the right questions about not just about how we restarted an economy, but what's the best kind of economy that we can build in our country going forward. You know, what do these times mean in terms of what is essential in terms of the kinds of wages that people deserve to uh, earn in our country? I think that we're perhaps not asking enough questions or the right questions with regard to domestic violence and sheltering in place in our country. You know, while staying at home on one hand uh, is perceived as safe, and it is. On the other hand, for so many hundreds of thousands of, of folks who are affected by domestic violence, we've not, I mean, it's, it's a tragedy that we know exists in this country. Um, and sadly, we're not asking questions uh, about how do we get to uh, those populations to try to help out. And you know, we've been talking about democracy and voting, but I don't know that we've been having the best kinds of conversations that we can have, robust conversations about, all right, how do we you know get beyond a system that was actually um, imparted to us during the time of antebellum chattel slavery, right? That's what we're living with, with the electoral college. So how do we rethink that system as a whole? And finally, although there are many more that we could be thinking about, what does this mean in terms of inter- international relations? What does this mean in terms of international trade um, going forward? We're, we're not there when we certainly aren't even paying attention to what's happening on the continent of Africa, what's happening in some parts of, of the world where developing economies are going to be hit by this. And then finally, I tie that with the environment as well. What does COVID-19 mean for the environment? And perhaps there we've seen one of the brightest silver linings, which is that with people off the seas and uh, a bit less in the plains, we've seen certain types of wildlife and sea life return. So I think across those various spaces,
2: almost every aspect of life, we need to think about how COVID is is affecting it. So one one of the things I would say in answer to that um, take an example out of business, the best businesses that I've been involved with are thinking of this in three stages. The first stage is just the immediate response to the crisis, trying to make sure that people are safe, their supply chains are working, keeping the business going and flowing. The, the middle is starting to think about how we would move people back in, and then probably how we're going to have to move them back out again, if we're honest about that. But the third piece that I've not seen talked about is how are we going to reimagine ourselves? Mm -hmm. What does this teach us, both in in the world of commerce, the world of civil liberties, the world of how we just culturally interact with each other? I would love to see a fourth thoughtful person in leadership. I mean, this is such a great time for real leaders to emerge, to come up and start talking about, here's what we can do afterwards. Now, somebody said to me, why waste a good crisis? That's, That's right. absolutely right. How we can be better afterwards.
1: <laughs> well, I think we have time for one more question. We have about uh, six minutes left, and I want to follow up on what you just said, Julie. Uh, so, if both of you, as you think about the, the impact that COVID 19 has had across the globe, and as you just said, never let a good crisis go to waste and reimagine. What our society could be? What are some thoughts that you that you both must have already had about what you think are the best things that that could come out of this this challenging time?
0: Oh, well, maybe I'll start and turn it over to you, um, Julie. You know, one of the things I've thought about is our crisis in education. Um, shortly after um, President Trump conjectured uh, about. Uh, injecting uh, bleach or experimenting with uh, the products that we know um, kill the virus on spot, we saw a spike uh, in parts of the country from disease control centers, from poison control centers, pardon me, with people ingesting uh, household products and bleach and things like that. And it revealed a a crisis in education. I, I think we have to recalibrate, you know, and again, this is a crisis before now. Right? You know, we see these studies that um, students in the US aren't performing at the same rate as their peers worldwide and whatnot. And I couldn't help but think back about President Obama and all the flack that he got because he said that the price of arugula was excessive at Whole Foods. And if you go back, you know, people were like crazy about this. Like, how dare he use that word, arugula? You know, how, you know, what, what is And you know, as my daughter said, she said, arugula is a farmed vegetable. (laughs) Are farmers elitist now? It's not caviar, but it was interesting. You know, to speak of something that grows from the earth was treated as something that's elitist rather than, oh, maybe we should know what arugula is because it's a leafy green that grows from the earth that's nutritious. And that there was such incredible pushback. What does it say about us? So a silver lining really could be thinking about how we invest in education, how we prepare people broadly to meet the kinds of challenges and opportunities that Julie talked about.
2: So how about we add to that a class in critical thinking skills? That's something I've seen that's been sorely missing. And also using your word elitist, there's kind of this wide swath of anti-intellectualism in our country. And if this, crisis is going to be solved it's going to be solved by the scientists and science is our best way of getting to the truth and to try to reinstill in people the understanding that science really is the way out and to revere that and that goes along to your point about education it
0: absolutely is right you know a respect for science a respect for medicine a respect for uh the enterprise of studying that that is not a bad thing that is actually what led us to being able to put someone on the moon right and to do the kinds of things that have distinguished the u.s and its economies over time and so i completely agree with you julie i think that is the direction and i think in the times of covid paying attention to health and science are just simply critical so let's
2: hear it for the scientists and intellectuals more anti-intellectualists
1: Well, then then I I, I feel compelled. I would not be doing my job as the dean of a law school to also say this is a great time for the law, the rule of law. We've heard so much discussion um, that both of you have had with each other about the the limits of law and the and the power of law um, to deal with crises as they emerge. So I completely agree that the answers are both in medicine and in science, and in thinking about how our laws and regulations and policies can help us not only deal with the issues that exist right now, but to help us reimagine or help us imagine, right, what the, the future uh, might be.
0: And can I add to that song, mm-hmm. also an embrace that those answers can come from populations yes. that we don't imagine it from. Yes. and as we look in California so much of Silicon Valley happens to be from people all over the world and that's an important lesson for us as well to get rid of the xenophobia and to understand that brilliance comes in many different packages um and that I think will go a long way to helping us address these important questions of
2: our times you know so I'm just maybe a closing thought here this is not an American crisis or a Chinese crisis or an African crisis, this is a world crisis. And even more importantly, it's a humanitarian crisis. And if something in our humanity can bring us together that says we're all uh, suffering through this together, that to me would be one of
1: the best silver linings. Hear, hear. I wanna hear, hear. Oh, cheers, darlings. Everyone. Um, I and to all of you in the audience. Thanks everyone, for staying with us. Everyone in the, in the audience, I want to thank you both so much for this insightful and powerful and illuminating discussion. You have certainly set the bar very high um, as the, the first um, in the COVID-19 and the law series. I, I appreciate so much uh, that you both took the time to, to talk about these important issues with us. So thank you. Um, And I also want to thank uh, all the members of the audience for staying with us uh, for this incredible discussion over the past hour. And I hope that you'll join us for the remainder of of our series. So once again, thank you, Julie Hill. Thank you, Michelle Goodwin. And thanks to all of you who have joined us for this important conversation.
0: Thank you for joining us for UCI Law Talks. Produced by the University of California, Irvine School of Law.